Well, I want to thank all of you for being here today. I know it's race day. It is a holiday weekend. There are lots of different things you could be doing right now. Some of you are probably thinking, I wish I had just slept in just a little bit longer. And, and, and I get it. I feel the lack of energy in the room. So I want, to, I want to challenge you this morning. I want to get your creative juices flowing by having a contest, okay? In just a moment, I am going to test your art history knowledge. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen, and I want to see who knows the name of the painting and the name of the artist. And I'm just making this decision right now on the spot. The first person to raise their hand, I will call on you. The first thing I say, go, I'll give you $5 to Starbucks, okay? So it just got real. Now, now all of a sudden, everybody's nodding. Oh, everybody wants in on this, right? So are you ready? Put it up there, John. Name of the painting, name of the artist. Name of the painting. This is the first hand I saw. Name of the painting? By? Not Leonardo DiCaprio, Leonardo da Vinci. No, you said da Vinci. You said da Vinci. You $5 to Starbucks for you, young man. Give this guy a hand. You paid attention in art class. Good for you. Good for you. Now, here's what's fascinating about that picture. You probably knew it as soon as you saw it, right? You've recognized it before. I've learned some pretty fascinating things about this. It was painted on a dining hall wall in a, in a convent in uh, Milan, Italy, over 500 years ago in 1495. Can you imagine that? Something that you're working on right now, that 500 years from now, people are going to be talking about publicly, right? It's pretty fascinating. And there's so many things about this painting that make it interesting, that make it, that make it famous. And so I was doing a little research this week and learned some things that maybe you know or maybe you didn't know. So it's pretty clear when you look at the painting, who's the center of the picture? It's, it's Jesus, right? But what you might not know is that da Vinci did something really interesting. He took, before he ever painted anything on the wall, he hammered a nail into the wall right beside Jesus' head, so it would be the center. And then he tied a string to that nail, and he used that string to guide his hands in making a lot of the sharp angles that you see all throughout the room, and also to give it a feeling of perspective. That was his whole goal. He wanted there to be a perspective change in the room. So that was a little unique about this painting. Now, another thing about it that you might not know is it's, it's world-renowned. It's famous, right? But it was actually a failed experiment. Because the paint that da Vinci used, it didn't adhere to the wall well. And a couple of decades after he was finished, it started to flake off and fall apart. And so over the centuries, it has been restored a number of different times. In fact, it has been restored so many times that it's believed you can't even see any of his original brushstrokes. Everything that you would see if you were to visit today is just, it's touched up in some way or another. But there's another thing about this painting that, that is, it's worth pointing out. Da Vinci did his homework. And he hid a lot of symbols and a lot of meanings in this painting. And I'm not talking about Da Vinci Code type stuff. He actually did his homework, and he's going to let us know who all of the people are around the table. So I want you to look at this version of the painting. You'll notice two circles here. See the yellow circle? Now, I remember learning this in art history class, and I thought this was fascinating. You have to look at it really close, but that guy in the yellow circle is holding a bag of money in his hand. And Da Vinci wants us to know, well, this is Judas Iscariot. This is the guy that received money in order to help Jesus be arrested. But something I learned this week that I didn't know, and if you look really, really close, by his elbow, there is a container of salt that's spilled over. And it's believed that that represents bad luck. And so if you know anything about Judas's story, it didn't end very well. But my point in that is da Vinci put a lot of different symbols and meanings in here for us to pay really close attention to what he's doing. Now, the red circle, if you look really close in the red circle, you'll notice a man holding a knife. Now, here's a really good question. If Jesus invites you over to dinner, why do you need a knife and why are you showing it to everybody at the table, right? Well, what he's telling us is that is the apostle 
Peter. That's one of his very best friends. But Da Vinci says, oh, that's Peter. Because if you know the story, later that night, you know what he did? He took out his knife and he cut off a guy's ear in defending Jesus. And so I don't know about you. When I look at it, I just think it's interesting that he did his homework and he let us know all these different details about who these men are. But here's a fact that is a little bizarre. I don't really know what to do with this. In 2010, there was a Vatican researcher that claimed that Da Vinci hid mathematical and astrological signs into this painting that can be used to determine when the end of the world is going to occur. And according to her calculations, based on what Da Vinci has hidden in this painting, she believes that Armageddon is going to take place in the year 4006. Now, that might make you a little anxious, but guys, we're not going to be around for it, okay? So we don't have to worry about that. Plus, I don't think she's right. Jesus said no one knows when that's going to happen. Now, whether or not that's true, I I don't know, but here's what we do know to be true. When da Vinci painted this masterpiece, what he was trying to capture was the very moment that Jesus would tell his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And when you look at it, look at their body language. There's people, some people are going away back like this in shock. Some people are leaning in. Some people are pointing. Some people are whispering. And so he wanted to capture the emotion of that moment. But here's the question that I have about a painting like this. What is it about this painting that makes it so famous? I mean, why is it that it's so easily recognizable over 500 years later? Now, part of that probably has to do with the fact that Leonardo da Vinci is one of the greatest artists and inventors that has ever lived, right? And it probably helps that Jesus is at the center of the painting. As it turns out, he's a pretty big deal around the world. He's been that way for centuries. But I can't help but wonder if part of the mystique about this painting is hidden in the name and in the meal that Jesus and his disciples are sharing around this table. Because as it turns out, the meal that they're sharing is actually the Passover meal. And it had been celebrated for 1,400 years before Jesus had ever set foot on the planet as a man. And if if you don't know anything about the Passover, here's what you need to know. It is, everything in the Passover is rich with meaning and symbolism, just like this painting. There's hidden meaning and symbolism all throughout it. In fact, it's not just a meal. It's more like an experience. And it was here at this Last Supper where Jesus instituted something that his followers have come to call the First Communion. Because ever since his resurrection nearly 2,000 years ago, his followers have gathered together on a regular basis all over the world to celebrate this meal in his honor. In fact, later today, we're going to have an opportunity to share it together as a church family. And I'm going to guess that many of you have shared this meal a number of different times. And depending on your upbringing, you were probably taught different things about this particular meal. Some of you would call it communion. Some of you have been taught that it's a sacrament or an ordinance. Or maybe you grew up in a tradition like me where it was referred to as the Eucharist. And so you're you're kind of familiar with it. But maybe some of you didn't grow up in or around the church and you're saying, I have no idea what any of those words mean. All I know is that when I see that picture, I know that Jesus is saying something special to his disciples. So we all have a different understanding of what's happening in in this meal. But I have a question for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, I just want you to be honest for a moment. Would you be willing to admit that whenever you have sat down to take this meal or to share it in an environment like this, have you ever found yourself tempted just to go through the motions? You know that there's a deeper meaning and symbolism behind it, and you try to make the most of the moment, but you know I'm supposed to eat and I'm supposed to drink and that's just what Christians do. But here's another really honest question. Would you ever, have you ever stopped? And I hope you have. I hope you stopped to say, why do we do that in the first place? Like, what's the point? What does it mean? Is there something more than just 
sharing this on a regular basis? Like, why would Jesus want us to do this? And here's the thing. I hope that you have. I hope that you've stopped to ask that question. It's really, really important that we know why we do what we do. So it doesn't just become something that we do. It's like, it's not just a religious ritual that Christians do, but it actually becomes something or it is something that followers of Jesus celebrate. And there's a, there's a difference between the two of those, something that we do just because and something that we celebrate because we know that it's really important. And what we're going to see today as we study this sacred meal, what we're going to learn is that Jesus wanted this meal to serve as a reminder of some very important promises that God had made throughout the course of time. And he was wanting his disciples to know, look, I am the fulfillment of every one of those promises. In fact, part of this meal, one of the reasons we celebrate it is he's also pointing us to something that's going to happen in the future. But in order for us to really understand these promises, what we need to do first is to go back to where God started to make these promises to mankind. And the best place to start is at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. And if you're not familiar with the book of Genesis, it's the first book in the Bible. It's the first book of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in the book of Genesis, it's, it's a book of beginnings. It tells us how God did what he did. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we see how God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the universe. But his crowning achievement was to create a man and a woman in his image and likeness. And then he placed authority over them to say, you rule over everything that I've given you. That's pretty fascinating. But then God went one step further. He didn't just say, here's your authority, go. He began to pursue them in a relationship. And it was a close, intimate, loving relationship, the kind of relationship that a parent would have with their children. And God would walk with them and he would talk with them. He showed personal concern for them. He took responsibility for their needs. And so what we see in this story of creation is that God had created Adam and Eve with the ability to have an unbroken, perfect relationship with him. Another way to think about this is they had perfect communion with God. And that word communion, it just means an intimate closeness. They got to experience an intimate closeness with God that all of us would like to experience. But then something happened that broke their intimacy with God. Another one of God's created beings stepped onto the scene and somehow convinced them to disobey God. Now his name, you've probably heard of him before, his name is Satan. And as it turns out, he was created to be this powerful, beautiful angel that was designed and created to worship God, but he wasn't happy with his job title. In fact, he goes on to say, I want to be like God. And he led a rebellion against God in heaven. He was very quickly defeated, thrown down to the earth as punishment. And there he became known as the enemy of God. And he was hell-bent, literally, on destroying the perfect communion that God could have with his creation. And eventually, he tricked Adam and Eve. And he convinced them that they didn't need communion with God in order to be fulfilled. In fact, he convinced them that, look, God's holding out on you. You need to go and do what's right for you. You need to go and do what you think is best. Why, why, why should God tell you what you think is best? And, and when he tricked them, what they didn't realize was going to happen was their communion with God would be broken. But here's the thing. That same temptation that Satan would lay down for them is the same temptation that he lays down for us, isn't it? I mean, have you ever stopped to wonder, why can't I just do whatever I want? Why can't I just go and have anything that I desire? And he would want us to believe that if we had what we want, we'd be happy. And God is just, we can't be happy. We can't be totally happy if we just live in obedience to God. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve, they fell for the trick. And what they didn't realize at the time, and it's the same thing that you and I do, 
they willingly traded the wisdom of God for Satan and his logic. And what they didn't realize would happen, God told them, when you do this, if you disobey against me, sin's going to enter the world and, and you're going to die at some point. You won't be able to live eternally anymore. And that's exactly what happened. They made that choice. Sin entered the world and their perfect communion with God was broken. And, and I, bet you've had, I bet you've experienced this kind of relational pain before. Maybe it was with a parent or a sibling, a spouse, a coworker, a friend. There was this relationship. It was perfect. It was good. Things were right. But somewhere along the way, trust was broken. A lie was told. A boundary or a border was crossed. And all of a sudden, you experienced pain. You experienced loss and sadness. Well, that's exactly where Adam and Eve found themselves, except this was with God. Things just weren't right. What was, clo- what was once close and intimate was now distant and distorted. And they had to wrestle with this idea that they were eventually going to die. And here's the thing, that was not part of God's plan. God didn't like it that way. And so thankfully, he wasn't content with the communion being broken. He wanted to lean in. He wanted to let you know, I have, let them know, I have a way for our communion to be restored. And so he stepped onto the scene at the moment that sin entered the world, and he did a couple of really important things. The first thing that he did was he confronted Satan directly. And and this is pretty fascinating. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. God confronts Satan. When he confronts Satan, he makes a promise. And he says, I'm going to send someone one day that will make everything right. Pay very close attention to what God says here in Genesis 3.15. He's talking to Satan, and God says, I'm going to put enmity. Another word is hostility, or maybe a way to think about this is war. I'm going to put war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then look at the very next word. What's the word? He. Where does this he come from? Who is, who is this he? It's singular and it's masculine. And he says, I'm going to put hostility between the two of you, between your families, but he will come one day to crush your head and you will strike his heel. Isn't it interesting when sin enters the world, God shows up and says, I've got all of this under control. One day there will be a man born of a woman who will destroy you and that will make everything right. Now, that's fascinating. That is the first promise of a Messiah that would come one day. But here's the thing. If you keep reading the story, God wasn't done there. God went on to show them what this Messiah would be like. And so if you go through the rest of the story, what you learn, when when sin entered the world, Adam and Eve realized they were naked. They were ashamed of their nakedness. And so they did what you and I would probably do. They made clothes out of leaves. That's all they had to work with, which doesn't sound bad, but what's going to happen? What's the problem with making clothes out of leaves. What happens? They dry out. They fall apart. They're not going to last, right? And so God knew this, and in his goodness, he said, I'm going to do something for you, and it's going to help you. It's going to cover you, but it's also going to show you what this Messiah will be like. So look at what God does for them in Genesis 3.21. It says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, you've probably heard this story before. Maybe you've overlooked this detail, but here's a question. Where would garments of skin come from? They'd have to come from an animal, right? And what would have to happen to that animal in order for it to give up its skin? It was going to have to die. And God had already told Adam and Eve, when you sin, you deserve to die. But here what God is saying is, I'm going to let something die in your place. I'm going to solve this problem that you can't solve for yourself. And this is actually a very large theological concept known as substitutionary 
atonement. Now, that's a really big word, but atonement is just a legal word. It means a compensation for a wrong or an injury. And so substitutionary atonement means someone or something is going to die in the place of the person that's guilty. And so what we see God doing in Genesis 3 is he's saying, I'm going to promise a Messiah that will come one day. And what they didn't understand is he's, this Messiah was going to come and eventually he will die in your place the same way that this animal died. And one day he's going to do that for everyone everywhere. Now, I know that that might be new information to you or maybe you've never pieced those things together like that. But God is beginning to make these promises saying, look, my, my desire is to bring this communion that's been broken back together. And I'm going to make some promises. I'm going to keep these promises. And over the course of time, I will fulfill them through a man that will come. Now, in order for us to see how these promises play out, we got to kind of fast forward through the rest of Scripture. What we see in the book of Genesis is God makes a promise to another couple, Abraham and Sarah. And he says, your family, you're going to have a family, and they're going to be a great and mighty nation. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, we see that this family is in place. They're known as the Hebrews, the Israelites, or the Jewish people. And if you go to the very next book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, what we find is this family has grown very large into a nation of millions, but there's just one really big problem. They find themselves enslaved in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. Now, if your family had been enslaved for over 400 years, would you not cry out to God and say, please, would you just get us out of here? There's got to be a better way to live. Well, that's where the Israelites found themselves. They're begging God for deliverance. And so God responds to their cries for help in a very unique way. The first thing he does is he raises up this man named Moses to be their leader. And then he says, look, I'm going to lead you out of here in a unique way, but I need you to pay attention to what I'm telling you to do. And here's the short version of the story. God told Moses and all the people, he says, here's what I want you to do tonight. I want you to take a lamb. I want you to kill this lamb and I want you to paint the, its blood over your door frames and I'm gonna pass over and, and you will be saved by, by that. Now that sounds really weird, doesn't it? To kill a lamb and to have every household paint the blood over their doorway. But listen to what God says. He explains himself in Exodus 12, verses 12 through 14. He says, on that same night, on the same night that you paint the blood on your door, I'm gonna pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And then he says this. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a, as a festival to the Lord, as a lasting ordinance. Now, you're probably familiar with the story but the detail you might not have picked up on is God, what God is saying is, look, my judgment is coming. And the only way for you, the only way for anyone to be spared is by the shedding of, a blood, of, of the blood of an animal. And, and this time he's saying, I want you to paint it on the doorframe of your home. And then listen to what God says again just a few verses later in Exodus 12, verses 24 through 27. He says, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance. In other words, do this over and over and over again. For you and your descendants, when you enter into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passes over the house of, Israel, of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Now, for those of us that aren't Jewish, we might think, okay, but what, what does that mean? Why, why does that matter? Well, here's what God was saying to those first people. He was saying, 
I want you to understand that your lives are going to be spared through your faith in and obedience to me. Whatever I tell you to do, I want you to do. And in this instance, I want you to paint the blood of an animal on your door. And then afterwards, I want you to gather together in the home and I want you to eat the rest of that animal together in anticipation of what I'm going to do. Because God wanted them to understand, I'm gonna free you from slavery, but I'm also working to restore my communion with you. I know this seems weird, but I want you to trust me because I'm working on our relationship. And I need to know that you can obey me. And so he reminded them, gather together, eat this meal together, and continue to do it when I bring you into the land that I promised you. And guess what happened? For the next 1,400 years, that's what they did. Over and over again, year after year, they would celebrate this Passover meal. They would eat this lamb in remembrance of how God set them free from their slavery through the blood of a lamb. But here's the thing. This special meal wasn't just meant for them to look backwards. It was also meant for them to look forwards to the day that a Messiah would come and he would die for the sins of the whole world. And so I want you to fast forward through scripture one more time. Go forward 1,400 more years until Jesus was born on this planet. He lives the first 30 years of his life in total obscurity. No one knows who he is. They don't know anything about him. But when he's 30 years old, he does something pretty unique. He's baptized by a prophet named John the Baptist. And, and John, his name was John the Baptist, not because he didn't want to be Catholic or Methodist. He was called John the Baptist because he was baptizing people, saying the Messiah is getting ready to arrive on the planet. Prepare yourself. And people started lining up to be baptized. Well, Jesus was one of those people. And through his baptism, God told John, there's the guy right there. So after Jesus is baptized, John gets excited about Jesus being the Messiah, and he introduces Jesus to his very first disciples, but their introduction's kind of weird and awkward. I want you to look at what John says. John the Baptist says, this is in the Gospel of John. Now, this was written by a whole different John. I know that's confusing. The John that wrote this was one of Jesus's followers, and he records the words of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says this. John 1.29 says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, wouldn't that be, John was a pretty weird guy anyway, but that would be a really weird way to point to someone and say, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But what John was saying to Jesus' first followers, he's saying, hey, I want you to pay attention to every promise God has ever made. Back in the beginning, when he killed that animal to make skins for Adam and Eve and promised the Messiah, that's your guy right there. In all these years that our families have celebrated the Passover together, we've been shedding the blood of animals for our sins. That's the Lamb of God right there. Eventually, he is gonna die to save us from our sins. And when he dies, when his blood is shed, John is saying he will restore our communion with our heavenly Father. Now, that's a lot to process. That's a lot of history wrapped up into about 10 or 15 minutes. But with all of that said, I want you to think about this. Fast forward three and a half years. It's Jesus's last night of freedom on the earth. He's sitting down with his disciples to share his last meal, the last supper. And guess what supper it was? It was the Passover. They had celebrated this for thousands of years. And now Jesus sits down to this meal and he says, and he does something that had never been done before. Listen to how Matthew records this in his gospel in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, Now listen to this very carefully. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many and for the forgiveness of sins. Now, these were good Hebrew people in the room. Their families had celebrated this for centuries, and they had never heard anybody say what Jesus just said. I want you to eat this because it's my body, and I want you to drink this because it's my blood. I mean, it's amazing that one of the gospel writers doesn't record somebody raising their hand and saying, Jesus, what are you talking about right now? Now, we we know what he's talking about, right? We knew that shortly after that, he would be arrested, he would die, and he would rise from the dead, proving that he is exactly who he says to be. But for these guys, on that night, this wasn't the Last Supper. This wasn't the first communion. This was just Passover. And they're like, Jesus, you, you can't do this to Passover. This, this is different than anything we've ever seen. But what they didn't understand is that when Jesus was taking this ancient tradition, and he was going to bring it to life in a brand new way by fulfilling every promise that God had ever made in order to save us from our sins and in order to restore our communion back to him. He was gonna give them a brand new reason to celebrate it all over again. And then in the days that passed, you know what his disciples saw? They saw him unfairly arrested, brutally beaten, crucified like a criminal, and then miraculously raised from the dead. And here's the thing, when he rose from the dead, all of a sudden that meal that they had shared a few days before had brand new meeting because when he rose from the dead he gave them and he gives us a new reason to celebrate because he proved he was the promised messiah from genesis 3 15 he proved that he had the power to crush satan sin and death and he had he proved if anyone could ever restore your communion with god it's me that meal matters don't just do it pay attention to what i'm doing on your behalf and so let's go back to the original question that we asked What is the meaning? What's the purpose behind communion? Why do we do this as followers of Jesus? I think the Apostle Paul actually gives us a really succinct summary of this. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, if someone were to ask you this question, here's how you could respond. You could say, well, Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we were supposed to die Apart from God, our communion broken, but God provided someone who had never sinned to stand in our place. And so for the last 2,000 years, as followers of Jesus have gathered together to faithfully share this meal, we celebrate that. We celebrate that God is faithful to his promises. We celebrate that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we celebrate the fact that our communion with God is being restored and will one day be completely restored when he returns. And so in just a moment, as we take time to share communion together as a church family, if you're like me, you've probably come in, you're a little tired. Maybe you're a little distracted about things that are gonna happen later today. It would be really easy when the band comes out to stand up and just go through the motions as usual. But I would encourage you to think through this history. Think through all the promises God has made. And maybe the first and most important thing for any of us to do would be to examine our hearts to look inside and come to grips with the fact that just like Adam and Eve, we've sinned. We are separate 
from God. Our, our relationship with God is damaged. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this, the importance of examining our hearts. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. In other words, Paul says you need to examine your heart. Be sure before you take and eat and drink, you understand what you're doing and why it matters. But then the second thing is simply to remember Jesus. Jesus and Paul both said the same thing. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Later, Paul would write, when we do this, we remember what he's done for us. Communion is an act of remembrance. We eat and we drink, but mentally we remember. We know that there are promises that were made on our behalf of things that we couldn't do for ourselves. And so we remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And then we pause. We stop and say, thank you. God, thank you that even though I know me, even though I know things about me that no one else knows, thank you that that sacrifice was for me. And there's nothing that I can do to step outside of that. If I lean into it, I'm covered. I'm covered by what Jesus has done for me. Thank you, God. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you didn't say, well, I would die for some of you, but not for all of you. It's an opportunity for us to thank him. But then here's what's really cool. Just like those disciples, it'd be easy for us to eat this and look back and remember all the things that have happened. But actually, we can, when we eat and we drink, we can anticipate his return. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. 26. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. In other words, what Paul says is, hey, we're doing this now to celebrate that the restoration process is in motion, but there'll be a day when the restoration process is complete. He will return and he will be with us and everything will be made right. There will be a wedding feast of the lamb. But until then, we anticipate his return. We do these things with purpose. We do these things as an act of worship for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so in just a moment, I'm gonna invite you. There's two stations up front, two stations in the back. And whenever you're ready, don't rush to do it. Whenever you're ready, you can come and get, there's two cups, the bread's on the bottom, the juice is on top. Take those, find a quiet space, walk through that process of examining your heart and remembering Jesus and saying thank you. Don't rush through it. Let it be an act of worship. But one thing I would say, here at Genesis, we believe this meal is, is really special and sacred. We believe it's should be practiced by people that, that are following Jesus, that have surrendered to Jesus. And so if you're not there yet, I would encourage you to not take this meal. And here's what I don't want you to hear me say. This isn't exclusive. It's not that we're better than you. It's not that we've got something you don't have. It's not that at all. We just look at what Jesus said and we look at what Paul said and we say, this is special. This isn't just bread and juice. This is a representation of what's been done on our behalf. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've surrendered to him, this is an opportunity for you to not go through the motions, but to worship him, to thank him, to remember him, and then to just let that, let his grace sink in. So as the team leads us in worship, you can come forward and take part in communion whenever you're ready.